people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. And then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. When he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in a splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any, other, any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and then release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man! Release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed him once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they had asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people, and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. And then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things, when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. (laughs) 
And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. They cast lots to divide his garments and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and then he took it down and he wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in a stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and they prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment.
this place gathered here to seek your face. And we thank you for the passion of your son, our king. We ask that you would speak to us now by the power of your Holy Spirit. That you would change our hearts. We long, we long to look more like Jesus. We pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen. Blessed, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The king enters into his city. The rightful return of the long-awaited king. And then we're overwhelmed with his first great act. As we've read about in Luke 22 and Luke 23. It's not what we would have expected a king to do. Again, many of us are familiar with this narrative that we call the Passion. It is our foundational narrative. It is the narrative from which we derive our sense of identity. It's this narrative that establishes the people of God, the church. It's what Jesus does here as king that both enables and sustains genuine, healthy communities of love, i.e. the church, his people. We've been in a series for the past seven weeks that's looking at the traits and practices of people who do enable and sustain healthy communities of love. And we see in the foundational act here in the Passion Narrative, actually all of the things that we've been looking at over the last seven weeks. And with a desire for us to continue to grow into Christ's likeness as, his, as the subjects of this king, to, as we saw last week from Ephesians 5, to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. With a desire to grow in that, what I want to do is for us to look at this passion narrative and to see how the things that we've been wrestling with in this series are portrayed and embodied in the foundational narrative of our life together and in the person and presence of our king, whose name is Jesus. So we're going to walk through this with seven points, not your typical three, but they'll be more brief. First, Jesus knows that he's loved. He knows that he's loved. And let's go back outside the passion narrative for a moment to his baptism. You'll remember when he's baptized by John the Baptist that the heavens open and the spirit descends upon him in the form of a dove. And then a voice from heaven resounds from the open heavens and says, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. This is before he had done his amazing teaching, before he had fed the 5,000, before he had raised Lazarus from the dead, before he had confronted the religious authorities of his day. It was before Jesus had done any of those things, any actions in his mission, that he hears the pronouncement. And it wouldn't have surprised him, I don't think. He'd been in fellowship with the Father for all eternity in this perfect relationship of love between the Father and the Son. But it was a pronouncement over him in his human mission that declared from the outset that he was beloved. This is so, so central for all of us in our own lives as we seek to walk with Jesus, to know deeply that we are loved. And we see Jesus as a model of this. We, see, we read in John's gospel in his account of these final hours that the night before he was crucified, Jesus 
It says, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose up from supper. And then we know when he rose up from supper, he washed the feet of his disciples and and dried them with a towel around his waist. He took this lowest place as a symbolic action of what he would do the next day on the cross. John's making the point. He knew who he was. He knew who he was. He knew that he was loved. One of the things that I say to our kids as I tuck them in and leave their rooms, it's just been a mantra of mine, is your mom loves you and I love you. And God loves you too. And you always belong in our family. It's just a foundational piece of knowledge that we desperately need to live the life that God is calling us to live, to know that we're loved. And Jesus, in his life and ministry and vocation, heads into these final hours with a deep sense of his being beloved. The second point for us in this series was that um, we shouldn't take the speck out of our brother's eye before we take the log out of our own eye or without attempting or without removing that log. And Jesus obviously is perfect. He did not sin. There is no log in Jesus's eye. But the underlying point there was that we are to be humble as rescued and loved and forgiven sinners, that we approach the relationships in the Christian community with humility, knowing that we too have had logs removed from our own eye. And Jesus, while not having ever had a log removed from his own eye, Jesus does embody humility in a profound way. Many of you will know the passage of the hymn in Philippians chapter 2 that was important in the early church. And we don't know if Paul composed it or if he just took it from the tradition to put it in Philippians 2, but though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The king who enters into, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, takes the lowest place. He comes among us as one who serves so that he might remove the specks and logs from our own eye, but he does it from alongside, and in many ways he does it even from below, though he is king. Jesus embodies true humility. And he embodies this as our narrative began in Luke 22 in Gethsemane with those words, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, with this kind of, this yieldedness to the will of the Father. So Jesus embodies the traits that we explore, these two of being beloved and being humble, of a log in our own eye kind of humility. We see them in Jesus. Now I want to turn to the practices. Third, Jesus, the beloved son, the humble one, pursues and prioritizes right relationship. The whole point of his passion is to reconcile God and man. 2 Corinthians 5.19, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself. The right relationship that Jesus came to address and to put right is the relationship between humanity, those who were made in God's image but ran away from him in rebellion in taking the, the throne for ourselves and between us and God, the rightful creator and Lord of all, who made us for himself that we would know him and walk with him and yield to him and glorify him in all that we say and all that we do. 
And Jesus came and he entered into this world and entered into his passion for the purpose of bringing about reconciliation, to right relationship. This was a priority. There is one mediator between God and men, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, as we saw, called us to interrupt our ritual acts of worship if our brother had something against us and to go and be reconciled first with our brother and then to come back and offer our gifts at the altar. Jesus interrupts his own unbroken and eternal fellowship in the heavenly realm with his father to address the brokenness of relationship that exists between his father and his creatures and to do that through the cross. We actually see an embodiment of this further in this passion narrative from Luke's gospel because when Jesus goes up on the cross, he's surrounded, remember, by these two thieves. And one mocks him like the others had been doing. And the other says, look, don't you understand? We're here because this is the, 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 the just deserts of our, of our actions, of our behavior. We're getting what we deserve, but this man is innocent. And then he looks at Jesus and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what does Jesus say back in those well-known words? He says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Even as Jesus is affecting the, rec the reconciliation of God and humanity on a cosmic scale, he's actually attending to a broken man who had been ostracized and hung on a cross, who had been forgotten, I'm sure, by anyone who would have been his associate because of where he ended up. And Jesus looks at that man as an image bearer of God and speaks words of reconciliation to him and invites him in. Jesus is all about right relationships, even up to the very end. Fourth, Jesus forgives. Jesus forgives, hanging in agony and humiliation on the cross, facing those who had mocked him and beat him and spit on him and ridiculed him and demanded his crucifixion through Pilate, even though Pilate had sought to release him. He cries out in the middle of that moment, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, I'm afraid this is one of those words of Jesus that we're just far too familiar with that we, we let it lose its shock value. Jesus didn't just, just get cut off on the highway. and It's not like somebody just, you know, offended him, a friend or a colleague offended him at work. He was hanging naked on a Roman cross. And he was there because of the unjust treatment that he had just received from these very people who were now mocking him on the cross. There was no going back. He wasn't going to come down from the cross. The only end of this uh, betrayal and this injustice was his own death. And he was there hanging in, under the weight of his own body, humiliated before all who could see. And in the pain of that moment, and in the excruciating agony of that moment, Jesus opens his mouth with words of forgiveness in the moment of pain. I distinctly remember about 15 years ago being in a crowded upstairs room at a restaurant in Washington, D.C. as a part of an event that the church I was serving at was having with a ministry leader from Rwanda. He had been instrumental in working for reconciliation in post-genocide Rwanda. And in 1996, he had been given the opportunity to go take a significant leadership position in the church in northwest Rwanda on the border of Congo. And at that time, the, the, Reb, the Hutu rebels were still coming in from Congo to northwest Rwanda and doing tremendously horrific acts of violence. 
And everybody who knew him told him when he was offered the job, don't take it. Don't take it. You'll be dead within a month. And he said, and he said this to me over lunch at a different moment when I had interact, interacted with him. He said, you know, when God calls you, you go. And so he moved to that region of Rwanda with his wife and five children. His life was nearly taken several times. At one point he was driving in two-car like little motorcade to get somewhere. And these rebels came up and shot and exploded the car behind him. They were coming for him and they had just missed him. So he put his life on the line to serve Jesus and then tragically, his own niece, a 13-year-old niece, was skinned alive by these rebels, and he was in tremendous pain. And in that upper room of the restaurant, as he was speaking to a bunch of young people working in Washington, D.C., he said, in the midst of my pain, the Lord spoke to me and revealed to me and, and, and pointed me to what happened on the cross, that I'm called to forgive these perpetrators of violence who have wounded my family, irrevocably so, while the pain is still raw and fresh. And then he pointed us to Luke 23 and said, because that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus forgives. Jesus forgives in the midst of his pain. And he calls us into this radical life as well. Jesus bears our burdens. This is the fifth point, and he bears particularly the burdens of our sin. In a passage that I would encourage all of us to reflect on this week, Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12, we read this. Surely, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then in verse 11, and he shall bear their iniquities. Peter, writing his first epistle, reflects on these words and quotes them. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. He bears our burdens. When our family went on our first ever multi-day backpacking trip, I think you all know we like to do that kind of thing. Our children were only three, five, six, and ten. Yes, we were crazy, I think. And uh, when I say backpacking, in this case, what I mean is we were going to hike in three miles, camp for three nights, and hike back out. Um, and we were all looking forward to it, and our youngest, who was only three, just had a school-sized backpack on, not a real kind of mountaineering backpack, because we knew that was all we thought she could handle. But it turns out that when we got on the trail, we started hiking within the first 30 minutes, uh, my youngest two kids were like, we're not carrying our packs anymore. This burden's too heavy. And so I became a mule in that moment, and I had a backpack on my right hand, a back, back, backpack on my left hand, and a way too full backpack on my back, and I was carrying their burdens so that they could walk on. Now, lest you think that I was like Jesus, as I'm sort of portraying here, I, I was pretty perturbed, I have to say. <laughs> uh, and I was thinking, this is not very fun. This is not what I envisioned. It did get better uh, as the packs got lighter, um, but uh, that was a challenge. That's a picture, though of us, like these young kids, with a burden that's too heavy, 
and we can't go on. And Jesus takes that burden upon himself, the burden of our sin, and bears it for us at the cross so that we might be unburdened, quite literally, and free to walk with him. He bears our burdens. Sixth, Christ did not please himself. Rather, and this is back to Romans 15, he pleased his neighbor for her good to build her up. In his flesh, he asked the Father to remove the cup from him. And I want you to understand, as you marinate in the passion narrative this week, I want you to understand that at any moment, Jesus had the power to stop it all. Now, he was in perfect union with his Father. This was the plan of salvation from the beginning of time. He wouldn't have done so, but he could have. In fact, as his disciples are kind of pushing back on his arrest in Matthew's account of this. You remember in Matthew 26, he says, do you think I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? Just a word and I can change this all. Just a word and I can come down. When they were asking him, if you are the Christ, save yourself, the thief said. And that's what the the people mocking him said. In just a word, Jesus could have changed it all. He could have stepped out. But that would have been pleasing himself. In his flesh, it wouldn't have pleased his heart, we know. His heart was to be there. No one took his life from him. He had the authority to to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. But Jesus could have done that. Instead, he doesn't please himself. But he pleases us, his neighbor, for our good, to build us up. As he taught us in John chapter 10, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He does it for you, and he does it for me, to please us and to bring about our good in a way that we probably would have never even known that we needed. And seventh, Jesus tames the tongue. The guards mocked him and beat him and blindfolded him and asked him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And we read of no answer. When he's before Herod, Herod questioned him, and we read in verse 9 of Luke 23, he made no answer. Here was a man who was mocked and beaten and treated with contempt and vehemently accused, and what did he do? He remained silent. Isaiah 53 again, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Is there ever a more amazing and powerful example of taming the tongue than this one? And not only will Jesus not lash out and and speak back, but when he's on the cross, the only words that he speaks are words of forgiveness, as we've seen. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Of reconciliation, today you will be with me in paradise. And of complete surrender and faith and hope. Father, this is quoting Psalm 31, into your hands I commit my spirit. Under such pain, with the weight of our burdens upon him, burdens that he didn't deserve, in the God-forsaken place of the cross, Jesus uses his tongue to bring about healing and forgiveness and reconciliation and and to exalt his heavenly Father. It's an amazing illustration of the power of the tongue to do good under such tremendous pressure to do otherwise. 
When Paul exhorts us to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, what he means is to walk in this way. The way of Jesus, the way of the cross, which is the way of love, which is what enables and sustains the community of the church. Jesus does it paradigmatically and unrepeatably in his passion. But then we are called by Jesus to walk in this way as well. His new commandment, remember, is to love one another. He says, just as I have loved you, so also you are to love one another. Three final points to close in somewhat application of this as we continue to meditate on these things for this week. The first is to say to walk in love, to pursue health. And Jesus did this, remember, in the time of darkness. He looks at the chief priests and the officers and the elders and he says, this is your hour and the power of darkness. When we walk on the way of Jesus, the way of the cross, the way of his passion, when we love as he he has loved, that means that we voluntarily embrace a real kind of suffering in the broken and dark world in which we live. It is an intentional step to give up, to burden ourselves that we might unburden others. When the author of Hebrews exhorts us to walk in this way, he says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. And remember, when we're fighting for health together, we're struggling against sin by seeking the way of love. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Kierkegaard wrote, one lives only once, so it is here upon earth. And while you are living this once, the extension of which in time diminishes with every fleeting hour, the God of love is seated in heaven, fondly loving you too. Yes, loving. Hence, he wishes so heartily that you finally might will as he, for the sake of eternity, desires for you to will, that you might resolve to will to suffer. That is, that you might resolve to will to love him. For him you can love only by suffering. Or if you love him as he would be loved, you will have suffering. Remember, one lives, he says, only once. To ask if we are willing to walk in the way of love as we have been loved is to ask if we are willing to enter into hardship. Which just takes us back to the need to know how deeply that we are loved. The second is we can't do this in our own strength. We can't walk the way of the cross in our own strength. We fall short and we should be inspired by Jesus as we look at the passion narrative this week in this foundational moment, but we can only walk this way in the power of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus embodies that as well because the Spirit descended upon him at his baptism and empowered him for his ministry and his mission. This way of love is a way of the Spirit. 
And third and finally, we don't do it all at once. To grow to greater degrees of health as the body of Christ, to grow on the way of love, is to grow incrementally, day by day, hour by hour, relationship by relationship, conflict by conflict, situation by situation. The Davidson College basketball head coach, Bob, Bob McKillop, who's famous for coaching Steph Curry, I should say, wrote this in an article recently about their dynamics as a team. He said, during the past few season, seasons, Davidson players who worked hard and pursued teamwork and excellence throughout a practice were given a penny. They would drop the penny in a large glass jar of, that stood like a shrine in the locker room. The message, when you add a little to a little, a penny to a penny, soon the little becomes a lot. Brothers and sisters, we are called to add little by little, day by day, hour by hour, on the path of love, in our community together, in imitation of our King, empowered by His Spirit, to His glory and honor and praise. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. Let's pray. We thank you, O oh Jesus, for your embodiment of love. To you be all honor and praise and glory. And we ask that by the Spirit's power, by your mercy and grace in our lives, O oh Father, that we too might walk on this path that you have trod for us. That we might do it for our neighbor and for you in your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.